Hi guys, welcome to You've Got Potential, a podcast um, featuring undergrad researchers and their work. Um, today we have a recent graduate of Rutgers University, Maria. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and what you did in your undergrad years at Rutgers? Sure. Hi everyone, I am a recent graduate of Rutgers University and I majored in psychology and cognitive science. And for the past three and a half years, I did work at the Social Emotional Care Development Lab under Dr. Elias. And my research was primarily on uh, student leadership, social networks, and um, I worked with urban inner city middle schools in New Jersey. How did you get into research at Rutgers and like what kind of drove you to that lab in the first place? So my interest in this lab specifically started because I was very interested in mental health and um, prevention. And this started during my time in high school in which I noticed that there was a lot of issues with mental health in the high school. A lot of my friends were dealing with depression, mental illness. And when I came to Rutgers, I wanted to do something that I felt like would be able to contribute to um, bettering schools. So since this lab was particularly uh, focused on schools as well as prevention and making sure that students have the skills to be able to properly manage their emotions and deal with uh, social relationships, I decided, you know, maybe this is a lab for me. So I applied during my freshman year. I got really lucky because there was someone that was already in the lab and was leaving at the same time and she actually became one of my good friends Adrian and she told me hey I'm leaving why don't you go apply and drop my name in the email and I applied and that's how I got in. So when you said apply um, did you apply like you just cold emailed them or apply like some sort of formal plan like a resty or, or why don't you tell the audience uh, how you how you got into that lab uh, the specific application process. So for me, I cold emailed my professor and I used a template. It was just sort of like, hello, my name is whatever. I majored in this. I'm in the honors college and I have done this. I'm really interested in this for this reason. And um, I got this template from a mentor that was very awesome during my time in the honors college. And um, they recommended that if you have anything to brag about as a freshman, please put it on the first line. It's okay if it seems kind of cheesy or like you feel like that. It's like, oh, I don't want to brag. Do brag because professors do pay attention to that. And um, I didn't do it through Arresti, but there are opportunities to apply formally to my lab and occasionally they will send out emails through the psychology listserv and if you join the psychology listserv and you see the application definitely go for it. What did a, a day in your lab like look like because we've never had a, a psychology major on our podcast before what does what does a la psychology lab like look on a day-to-day -day basis? So for psychology labs on a day-to-day -day basis, it varies depending on what your role is in the lab. So for most psychology research assistants that join my lab, it's not like a chemical base or like a biology like wet lab. Um, your first role is probably basic data entry and like managing certain like transcription or transcribing of something. 
And then as you gradually work in the lab, you get to do other cool stuff. So for me, when I was in the middle of my junior or my sophomore year, what a day looked like for me is I would come in, I would say hi to everyone and check in with everyone. And um, I would check in with my lab manager and ask if there's anything like uh, pressing that needs to be done or like, any extra tasks that needs me to be part of. And then I would go to my lab computer and I would start coding. And the reason why I would be coding is because I did social network analysis. If you see my background, that's example of a network. And um, in order to create these networks, you needed to do coding in order to data clean the data, which was humongous amounts of data. We're talking about over 10,000 cells per sheet. And once you turn the networks, like turn the data into the networks, then you can actually do the social network analysis. Do you mind um, maybe going into a few things like how did you do data collection? Because um, I'm kind of curious as to how, like in the nature of your work, you ended up with like millions of entries and then also explain like what a network is and how it's related um, to your work. So we didn't have millions of entries, but we definitely had like a lot of data. Um, I was not a part of the data collection phase of this study, but I do know a little bit about it. The data uh, collection phase was actually pretty difficult. And the reason is because we worked with lower income inner city middle schools, which we didn't, they don't really have technology as we do. So we had to do a lot of our survey collection with uh, written material. So a lot of the RAs, their job was to actually transcribe or to enter manually all of the paper that was given to us. And we would send these surveys back and forth almost every semester and sometimes we wouldn't get things back we would get low turnout uh principal decided to get into political or disagreement with us it's it, there was a lot of issues that we encountered but fortunately we still had enough data for three schools that we worked with that we could have done the social network analysis with as for social network analysis it's kind of a complicated topic for me i'm actually still a newbie to the field so I can't really explain some of the more complicated concepts, but um, in general, when you want to turn a network, want to turn data into a network, there are a couple ways of going about it. For me, I took the data, I made them into an edge list, which basically is a very simple format. You have the nominator, so the student is student nominating, and the nominated on the second column. And just making that list, that simple list, can be then transformed into any sort of social network. What is a social network in the context of your research? Because I'm not familiar what it is with what it is. So what I can do right now is I can share my screen and I can give you an, a very basic example of what a social network would look like. So if you give me a second. Can everyone see my screen? Yeah, right. I can. So, this is a very basic uh, example of a network that I put in my manuscript just for the sake of explaining what a network is. So first thing first about a network, there are something called nodes or vertexes. And what they represent is an individual, maybe even a company or an entity. So you can think of it of each node or vertex here is representing a student. And I labeled each student with letter A, E, G, B, D, F, C. And the second most important thing about a network is about these arrows that you see going outwards or inwards. So 
first thing uh, that you should pay attention to is what direction is the arrow going and is it going inward into the vertex or is it going outwards like for example this arrow is going outwards to inwards to b when you calculate the number of nominations someone receives that's what we would call the in degree measure so if you look at d over here you got two in degree you got a value of two for the in degree of d when you calculate how many people someone nominated that is what we call out degree and you can see here c nominated two people so the value of the out degree is two so this is what a basic network would look like if you just had a few amount of individuals look like this is an this is an actual network taken from um, one of our schools that we used for our manuscript that we uh, we just recently submitted for publication, and as you can see, I circled each um, cluster that we were looking at. Cluster being the sort of like organization of nodes that we were particularly interested in. So this network is particularly special. And the reason why it's special is because a lot of networks when you're doing social network analysis are friendship networks. And what I mean by friendship networks is that when you ask like people to nominate other people, it's a nomination of, okay, who is your friend? For our network, it is not a friendship network. Instead, what you see is a network created from the question, who is a good leader? And that matters because instead of nominating who is a friend, you're nominating who you think is a good leader. And this is what happens when you have a good leadership network. But this is what you would expect to see from um, our research. So that's really interesting. Is there any implications in that second figure about how you had, I think it was like A, B, and D overlapping, but or, or, or three of them were overlapping, but one of them was isolated. Um, are there any implications to that? So there was no implications that we talked about in the publication manuscript about the formation of the clusters in which like um, the clusters as a whole, they were isolated from each other. But the implication could be that there are sort of cliques that you see inside of these schools in which there are these sort of big sort of interconnected networks that um, are, they might be dense, within themselves, but they are sort of disconnected from other network networks within the same school. And this kind of makes sense in some ways because like you usually have your best friends in the same classroom or the other classroom and you're like, okay, my best friend's the best good leader ever. I'm gonna vote for them. So you tend to vote for people that you know and that you probably share in the same classroom. So you're not necessarily going to expand outward to like the whole entire school. So if you see like a disconnected cluster from the rest of the school, it might just be a sign that like people are just nominating within their own classrooms or within their own vicinity. That's so funny that you could like computationally find clicks within schools. <laughs> um, I was also wondering, like, I didn't know about the Cogside department until my like maybe second or third year at Rutgers. Uh, I was wondering, like, how did you hear about them and like what motivated you to pursue a double major with them? So I was very lucky that when I first came to Rutgers in 2017 of fall, that was the first semester that the cognitive science major was started. It was created that semester. 
And the reason why I joined the cognitive science major is because it fits really well with the psychology major and it gives me a great excuse to learn things outside of psychology. And it is a great major for people who are very much interested in things such as AI and consciousness and the mind because it is an interdisciplinary field which includes working with economists, psychologists, philosophers, um, computer scientists, anthropologists, and maybe even like a linguist. So if you're interested in something that is interdisciplinary and related to the mind, I highly recommend trying out the cognitive science major, at least try out the intro course because I think it was so cool. Where, where do your like interests lie in the future? Because like based off of uh, like some of the stuff you showed me, it seemed like you'd be really interested in, in pursuing like AI, like, like you said, like uh, maybe studying it or, or, or even uh, or doing it in industry or something like that. That would be really cool. So currently I'm sort of in the limbo because I'm not exactly sure what I want to do with my life. So that's why I'm taking a gap year. Um, I'm working at the Nathan Klein Institute for Psychiatric, Psychiatric Research. And um, the thing about my research interest, thank you, is that um, I've started to realize I really enjoy working with things related to technology and mental health. Um, I think during my time coding for the lab and using social networks, it made me realize that like, I very much enjoy working at the frontier of like mental health with technology. And so far I'm, I'm taking sort of like, uh, I guess you could say a minor jump towards another subject. And I'm particularly interested right now in virtual reality and post-traumatic stress disorder. And the reason why I'm interested in this is because virtual reality can be used for exposure therapy, which is considered the gold standard therapy for PTSD. And right now it's not very popular because it's well, it's first of all, it's kind of expensive to use and it takes extensive training for the clinician to be able to use VR. But I'm particularly interested in studying this because if it really is um, a useful tool and technology for exposure therapies, we can open up huge amounts of like information about like how we can do exposure therapy better with technology. I am very intrigued by the fact that you've been in your lab for four years. Um, that reason is because my research experience has been kind of all over the place. It changed my interests many times. So I was wondering if you would like to go over what was your process of growth within the same lab, as I understand, over the span of your whole undergraduate career? Of course. So as like all other RAs, I first started with very basic data entry. So it wasn't very uh, beautiful. It was just uh, me sitting in front of a chair, trying not to fall asleep, putting in numbers. And um, after the first semester, I, so this was, I started in the, the spring semester. So then I started the summer, the summer of um, 2018. And during the summer, usually labs have more time to do mentoring and like help um, basically tailor a journey or a path for a student that is interested in research. So during this time, I started to develop more skills and I eventually got to the point in which I led a team of RAs in um, transcribing and proofreading essays. Since um, the essays were written 
handwritten, we needed to transcribe them into the document and proofread them. And the process was very long and difficult and had to be tracked pretty detailed because we had over, I don't know, 600 essays we needed to transcribe and proofread. And I think during this sort of time period, they saw that I had a potential for research. So um, at the same time that I was doing proofreading, I got by chance put on a project called Leadership Project, which eventually led to the social networks. And what happened is that the project originally was put on hold because there, um, the grad student that was doing the programming um, didn't know what he was doing. And it got in there, we couldn't get the data we needed, which is what, which is the network. So it got put on hold. So one day I finished early and I went to my lab manager and she decided, you know what? I'm gonna let Maria play with this and see what happens, why not? So I played with it and I, I figured out how to make networks out of it. So after I made networks out of it, they realized, okay, I think this person could be the lead for this project. And that meant that I was coding for about a whole entire year to data clean the huge and messy um, data set that we had to turn into networks. And then because I've such, like I did so much of the network stuff, I started writing the papers and like doing posters and stuff like that. And it started with a poster and then an independent project. And then eventually we got to the point which we wrote the manuscript for a publication and that um, resulted in us submitting our paper for publication just recently. Um, I had a question about coding because it seemed like you may have done a little bit of that in your research, just a little. Um, was that something that you started on your own or were you kind of like taught um, as like part of your lab? So I took intro to computer science as a part of the cognitive science major, which is why you should totally take that major. And I decided to take data structures as well, which is like one notoriously known as one of the most difficult Kansai courses that was discrete. And after I got an A in it, I realized maybe I could use this skill in my lab. <laughs> so um, I use R to program my um, data cleaning, but um, I thank data structures for being like, the reason why I was able to do my job properly was because I took data structures and I understood like the actual like data structure of network itself. And I'm really thankful that I took that course because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it, but I was not explicitly taught how to code in the lab, which is why I recommend any researcher to take an intro, at least an intro to Kansai course. I had to learn R on the go, which is why it took a long time for me to do data cleaning, but it was a really, good experience. And whenever I go to interviews or something like that, people are always impressed that I know how to code. Um, you've already given like tidbits of advice to a, a wide audience of people, but specifically for people who are interested in AI, what is like, maybe what are some classes to recommend, like CompSci major, you kind of like promote um, as a whole, but what other things can they do to like maybe get started on like looking into that track? So I am not an expert on the AI track, but I can give you some pointers. I would say that 
other than ComSci courses, of course, there is an AI and data science course, 400 level course in ComSci major that anyone could take after discrete one. I would say that it's useful to have courses in linguistics, which might be surprising, neuroscience, or philosophy. Philosophy, I took my machines and persons, and it goes over a lot of the major theories about consciousness and the mind and how it works. And it gives you a lot of thought about whether or not it's even possible to have a computer become sentient or become human. Like, what does it mean to have consciousness? What does it mean to have a conscious experience? What does it mean to be even human? And those questions are big questions that should be asked because, well, what happens one day if computers become sentient? Like, how would you know? And what would you do about it? So philosophy courses are really interesting and they also count as an elective for consign majors. So be on the watch out for that. Um, the reason why I recommend neuroscience and um, linguistics, neuroscience, um, a lot of great interdisciplinary work is being done at the cross section of neuroscience and computer science. And it makes sense because if the computer is like a model of the brain in like tech form then we can use things like AI to help us illuminate our understanding of neuroscience. And if neuroscience uh, is the understanding of the brain, then we can use the brain to help us understand how to create better AI or to create AI that is more human-like. And then of course, linguistics. Um, the reason why I recommend linguistics is more for machine learning. I know that machine learning isn't the same thing as AI. I'm no I don't really know the like technical reason why they're different, but I do know that natural language processing is becoming bigger and bigger. And it's great to have a linguistic background in order to understand things like NLP at a very high level. And then there's also like things like sensation and perception, which you might be interested in if you're interested in like image recognition, like that definitely is more in the psychology field. So definitely take sensation and perception. I'm very, uh intrigued by your upcoming position, your upcoming job. Um, and I was wondering if you would like to tell us about it, like what you will be doing in your new um, job at the, is it Klein Institute? I'm very bad with names. Yeah, yeah. so it's the Nathan Klein Institute for Psychiatric Research. It's in Orangeburg, New York. And I'd be happy to tell you what I'm going to be doing. Um, so. The project that I'm working on is called the Rockland 2 project. And basically it's a project that is a follow-up of the original Rockland project. So the original Rockland project was this huge, enormous project with multiple researchers working on it, looking at um, brain development across the ages and looking at risk and resilience factors um, um, for mental illness and stuff like that. And what you would have is that you would, you, they would um, survey people from ages from five to I think 75. So it was a cross-sectional study. And there were about a thousand people who went into this study and they were looking at like a variety of different things because there were multiple researchers. And for my boss, she was particularly interested in exercise and cognition. So they actually had someone ride on a bicycle with like a mask on. Um, well, yeah, for, for this new study, we're going to have um, people ride on a bicycle with a mask on. So we're going to be 
as an RA, I'm going to be in charge of making sure that people um, are assessed for behavioral, neuropsychological, and psychiatric assessment, and making sure that people actually ride the bicycle because apparently people don't like exercising when they go in for a research study. And <laughs> and my job is basically handling like all these assessments and data database management. So a lot of um, clinical skills I'm going to be developing. Not as much as um, um, data like management, like what I did in my prior lab, but I think it's going to be great because I didn't get a chance to do a lot of field work when I was in undergrad and I didn't get a chance to develop a lot of my clinical skills and developing your clinical skills and learning to do assessment is something I learned is actually really commonly asked for in jobs in psychology research. So if you want ever wanted to do um, a job in psychology research for a gap year, I highly, highly, highly recommend two things, coding and getting assessment experience because everyone's looking for it, especially if you do fMRI work or EEG work. So does assessment experience mean knowing a protocol on how to work with humans, like how to guide them through a procedure or does it mean like making those machines or computer programs work? Um, I think as a part of my job, I'm probably going to be giving assessments. So like if there was like a, a, like a depression inventory, I'll be one reading off the questions and like asking for more details and writing things down. And I'm probably going to be operating some machinery to make sure that like during the assessment of like, uh, I don't know, the like it's like the O2 levels when you run that bicycle, I'm probably gonna be in charge of making sure the machinery works so that we can measure their O2 levels when they're exercising. That is all extremely fascinating. And I really, really, really appreciate the drive and understanding and grounding that you have within this topic. Like it feels like your undergraduate experience and your drive to want to solve this very important issue, which is mental health research, has really always headed you in a direction that is giving you so many opportunities right now. And like also very clear understanding of where your studies can take you. So that's absolutely like glorious. And a lot of undergraduates I think should be looking into their studies with that mindset, kind of take advantage of what this major is supposed to be teaching you, what like opportunities you can gather from it. And in research too, I mean, being resourceful, being like always ready to have something to like absorb is essential and a backbone of being a great researcher. So that's absolutely awesome. Uh, I'm so happy we got to talk to you today. Uh, very inspiring, I mean, like, I'm really getting a lot of motivational energy from all of this, like, oh yeah, I, did, I took this class about this super cool topic and I learned about it and like, it, it's very motivating. So thank you so much for being here with us today. It was really, really great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was an awesome experience to get to talk to you all. I would like to wish you both from my end, but I'm sure it's uh, from everyone else too, the bestest wishes and uh, tell you and our listeners even if 
you probably know it already that you've got so much potential you're gonna do great things and we wish you the best i think i did it for something else but i think it's fine okay so we're back on <laughs> okay hello everyone again i decided that i wanted to add a little bit tidbit to the end of this video and um so recently i started volunteering at buddy help which is a emotional support listening platform they also have a uh, counseling but um, it's primarily uh, support listeners volunteering their time to listen to anyone that needs some help and the reason why I bring this up is because it is a very valuable experience for anyone in the psychology major that is potentially just in clinical psychology counseling psychology or the mental health field in general and the reason why is because it is a great opportunity for you to practice active listening and learn how to empathize with people who are telling them, telling you your deep, their deepest and darkest fears and um, difficulties. And this is a very meaningful experience for people who work um, as volunteer listeners because it, it, it really does make an impact if you just be there and listen and empathize with someone. So not only is this opportunity a great opportunity to make a meaningful impact on the people around you, no matter where they are, but there also is a great opportunity to learn clinical skills that someday may help you when you apply for a clinical psychology program or therapy program or counseling program. Thank you.